Thank you so much. Redeemer members, please make sure before you leave this morning to thank Laura for coming, leading us in song today. If you have your Bible or your worship guide, go ahead and open with me to our sermon passage this morning. We concluded our series on the book of Colossians, and this morning I want to talk with you about humility. We're going to do so by looking at Philippians chapter 2, the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2. So let's read and ask for God's help as we open his word together now. So if you're looking there, verse 1, the Apostle Paul, he says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God today bless the reading of his word. I can sum up my message today and what I want you to come away with it with in one simple sentence. People of a humble God should be a humble people. Many of you know I have the unique privilege throughout the week of teaching middle schoolers Bible at Harding Academy. And if there's one thing I've learned this semester, as I've been continually humbled in my eighth grade classes especially, is that I'm past the point in my life where any middle schooler is going to think that I'm cool. The past uh, week, Uh, I had a conversation with a student who, many of you know, our son Theo, he's three months old tomorrow. We're very excited about that, very thankful that he's growing. I thank you guys for continually asking how he's doing and and asking how you can pray for him. Hopefully, if you're at lunch later, you'll see him. And he's he's growing like a weed. He's doing great, uh, healthy. But it's been a little bit iffy on the sleep side of things. Those of you with little ones uh, know, you know, around three months, it's improved recently, but it's, it's been, been hard. I've not been getting a lot of sleep. And I, I was told by a student this week, Mr. Pence, you, have you ever been told before you kind of look like a vampire? It's like, where is this going? Depending on your vampire franchise, this could be like, you know, a compliment. Or, you know, if it's more Dracula, it's not so much a compliment, right? And uh, this student said, yeah, we were at the lunch table and we were having this conversation about how you kind of have a vampire vibe. If one of our teachers was going to be a teacher by day, vampire by night, we think it would be you, which I think was her way of saying, you look tired. (laughs) You get some bags under your eyes. You're looking paler than normal. 
Mr. Pence. I don't think it was the, the compliment uh, variation of being told that I look like a vampire, but I'm used to it. I, I roll with the punches, eighth graders, no social inhibitions. They say what they think, and that is constantly, and, and in a sanctifying way for me, very, very sanctifying. It has helped me and freed me as an educator, kind of embrace my own personality, be goofy as a teacher, uh, humbling myself and being humbled on a day-by-day -day basis. Uh, which is, returning to Philippians chapter 2, that's our theme. That's what Paul wants to convince us of in this passage. He wants us to convince us that humility is key to discipleship unto Jesus. It was Augustine who once said that if you ask me what the essential thing in the religion and discipline of Jesus Christ is, I shall reply first, humility. Second, humility. And third, humility. And I think that is, in, in essence, what Paul is trying to communicate to us in Philippians chapter 2. For context, remember Paul is writing in the book of Philippians to a church that he himself began on his second missionary journey. This was a city that receives a lot of attention in the book of Acts, where we see the conversion of Lydia, where we see the conversion of a, a demon-possessed servant girl, where we receive the story of Paul's deliverance, supernatural deliverance from imprisonment and the, the conversion of the, the jailer there. All of this happens in the city of Philippi, and it's a, a church that Paul now writing in the late, or early 60s AD, at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, he's probably about away a year or so from meeting his death at the hands of Emperor Nero as he's penning this from prison. He's showing us his, his heart, and he's showing us the importance of humility by remembering and reminding them of this simple truth, that the people of a humble God should be a humble people. So I want to consider that in two points. You can follow along with me if you've got your worship guide. I've got my outline there. We'll consider first the mandate and then the model for humility. The mandate in verses 1 through 4, and then in verses 5 through 11, the model, as he turns and roots everything that he tells us to do in what Jesus Christ has already done for us. So follow along with me, starting in verse 1, the mandate for humility. Paul had kept tabs on the church in Philippi. It had been a number of years since he had been there and established the church and loved well the people in that church. And he was aware through correspondence, he was aware through the, the reporting of his mentees who he would send back and forth to this church, uh, that there was, we could put it this way, a, a malaise in the church in Philippi. There was division in the church in Philippi. There was a spiritual pride that had taken root in some of the members' hearts in the church in Philippi. And, and to that, Paul, again, writing from jail, he reminds them, like, hey, you need to come together. And he encourages them to do three things. First, he encourages them to be united, to be united with one another. If you want to look with me at verses 1 through 2 again, he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I hope that we, I hope that I, just looking at the example of the Apostle Paul here, in chains, writing from imprisonment, not his cushy imprisonment um, in, in Rome under house arrest, but many scholars believe this is a separate imprisonment, the city is debated, 
But Paul is writing from prison, and his concern, what he says, you know what would make me really happy right now? Not that he would be released, not that he would get to continue um, his ministry as a free man. No, you know what would fulfill Paul's heart? Fulfill his joy that y'all get along, Paul says, basically. He's calling this church that is experiencing division to be of the same love and of the same mind and being in full accord with one another. Now, we should be careful to note what Paul, I'm going to say this several times today throughout this passage, it's important for us to realize what he's not saying in order to realize what he is saying. He's not saying, hey, church in Philippi, you guys have to to be similar. You guys have to like all the same things. You guys have to to agree on just, you know, every position on on every, every part of uh, you know, theology and, and politics and, and ethics. He's not saying that they have to agree on everything, but he is saying that they need to be united and they need to agree and humble themselves around what is most important. I'm going to quote a New Testament scholar named Gordon Fee a lot this morning. Um, and he says here that the emphasis is on the Philippians' unity of purpose. Pay attention there. Unity of purpose, unity with regard to the gospel, and their heavenly citizenship, not on their having all the same opinions about everything. So the same way today that disunity rages in the church, it was no different in the New Testament times. We as evangelicals and as Baptists have a sad history here. I think of, of meeting these calls to unity in the New Testament and immediately our knee-jerk reaction is, yes, but, yes, yes, but, uh, look at this debate. Look at uh, this important distinction between us and, and other people and us in different groups and us in different traditions. Yes, but to every call to unity. And we need to, to humble ourselves and listen. Let ourselves be challenged by the Apostle Paul. Secondly, he calls them not only to pursue unity, but he calls them to pursue unselfishness. Now, that's how I'm going to apply verse 3 for us. He says, verse 3, put your eyes there again. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This phrase, selfish ambition, it can be interpreted as in this way. It is the self-interest, our self-interest, when we act in self-interest at the expense of other people. It's when we, we grasp for, for power and for place rather than place ourselves at the feet of others as servants. It's used in ancient Greek literature uh, to describe, like in Plato's Republic, it's used to describe kind of conniving, sneaky, self, um, self-promoting politicians in trying to climb the ladder in Roman politics and, and in Greek politics. The second phrase here, a conceit, we could interpret that really literally as vain glory. Paul is going to talk about a certain glory that those who humble themselves will receive. He'll talk about that as he talks about the exaltation of Jesus. And before he gets there, he wants to show us that, hey, like, acting in selfishness, acting in self-promoting ways, uh, being prideful, all that achieves, he says here, is, is vain glory. It's empty. To, to act in a conceited way, to, to pursue vainglory, it is to simply, anytime we're committing this, anytime we're thinking of ourselves too highly and too often, too highly 
too often. So he says, don't do that. Put that off. Put that off. But then he, he states the command positively when he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, which is really at the whole heart of verses 1 through 4. In humility, count others, even these people, church in Philippi, that are getting on your nerves, that you don't agree with about everything, that are annoying you, treat them as more significant than yourselves. And humility is, we should be careful to define that phrase. Uh, and I'll, I'll agree with C.S. Lewis, who said that humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less often. Or as Tim Keller following Lewis, because if you know anything about Tim Keller, he quotes C.S. Lewis a lot. And Tim Keller, he wrote a little book called The, the Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And, and that's his definition of humility. I think that's helpful. We're being humble, not when we're being insecure or uh, self-deprecating or, or negative about who we are. That's not what humility and, and meekness, that's not what the Bible is talking about when it says be humble. We're being humble when we are focusing on uh, the goodness and the needs of other people more than ourselves. So the humble heart is the heart that's, that's not obsessed with itself. So I'll quote Gordon Fee here again. He says, uh, that humility, acting in humility, counting others as more significant than ourselves, it's not so much thinking that, that other members of the community are to be thought of as better than me, but that those needs in the community of my brothers and sisters in Christ, those needs surpass my own, or they should in our priorities. So again, it's, it's not thinking less of ourselves, but it's thinking of ourselves less often. The last charge that he gives them in these first four verses is that they should appreciate one another. They should pursue appreciation. Let me show you what I mean by this. I, I came through just reading some helpful scholars this week to, I, I believe, a more helpful understanding of verse 4, which I'd always kind of taken, as Paul says, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I'd always kind of understood that to mean, like, hey, respect one another's opinions, which is certainly an important application of humility. Uh, but many scholars actually believe that the, the better way to understand this verse is it's not that we're looking to one another's opinions or, or interests or thoughts. It's that we are appreciating one another's persons, one another's giftings, one another's maturity. Uh, another New Testament scholar named Ralph Martin, he says uh, that looking to the interests of others, it means to look to the gifts and spiritual endowments of others. Does this make sense? He continues, it is not to be so preoccupied with our, our own concerns that we miss the noble traits to be seen in others. So it's a call to look at one another in the church and as kind of an antidote to the poison of pridefulness, to, to look around and go, man, God has blessed me with this community where I am, but to pull on another important New Testament theme, I'm one part of a large body. And I need the other members. I need the other gifts. I need the maturity of other members of this body. So I'm not just looking to myself, but I'm looking to others and being thankful for the role that God has placed them in my life. It's very easy to look for things that we don't like in other people. It's very easy to look for reasons to, to disregard others. 
This is something we should consciously make an effort. Easy way of applying this passage, just thank someone this week. Show your appreciation. Compliment someone, like earnestly compliment and thank someone, a brother and sister of Christ here, for some way that you, they, have, they have served or encouraged you or, or some fruit of the Spirit that you see God cultivating in their life. This verse brings to mind for me a conversation that George Whitfield had. Some of you are aware of who George Whitfield is. Uh, the great preacher of the first great awakening, contemporary of John Wesley. And there was a time at which Whitfield had preached so much and so fervently that historians estimate that more people in the United States, well, it wasn't the United States then, it was the colonial United States, but more people in America had heard them than had not heard him. And famous around the world, he and, and John Wesley didn't agree on everything. Contemporaries, they uh, disagreed. Some of you were in a quick class today. They had major differences of theology, especially over the doctrine of salvation and the idea of predestination. And people knew this, but they were careful, or Whitfield was careful, not to engage publicly and, and demean Wesley. And after John Wesley died, someone asked Whitfield, knowing that they had this major disagreement and knowing that they didn't see eye to eye on so many different things, Someone came and asked Whitfield, do you think that you will see John Wesley in heaven? Loaded question. And Wesley, or Whitfield, he said, no, I don't think I'm going to see John Wesley in heaven. Shock, right? Wait, what are you saying? And then he goes on and he clarifies. He said, it's going to be because Wesley is going to be so much closer to the throne of Jesus than I am. He was so much godlier. He, he was so much more passionate about the, preaching the gospel than I am. He's going to be so much closer worshiping the throne of Jesus in heaven. And it was Whitfield's way of communicating his, his humility, that even this, this man who had in their later years become an opponent uh, to him, um, he could appreciate his giftings, and he could appreciate his godliness, even though they saw things majorly differently on some very important issues. So we should pursue unity. We should appreciate one another. We should pursue unselfishness. We should make sure that we are not thinking of ourselves too highly and not thinking of ourselves too often. Because we are called to, as we'll be called to in just a moment, we are called to put on this mind of Christ. I was having a conversation with another student this week who is talking about his grades, his lack of focus on his grades, our need to kind of get focused this semester as we, we near the end of the quarter. And uh, this student expressed to me his, his understanding, like, Mr. Pence, it's okay. Like, I really don't need to focus on my grades that much. Because I'm going to pray. I'm, I'm going to be in the NBA. Don't worry. I'm, I'm going straight to the MBA. Don't, it's, it's okay. Don't worry about my effing Bible right now. And he was not, he's not concerned at all, as i unpacking this idea, this plan with him. He's not concerned at all that he's uh, about 5'4". He's not concerned at all that he is, uh, didn't even make it onto our small Christian varsity team for basketball. He's not concerned at all that uh, when I asked him, can you name a couple of people under six foot in the NBA. Okay, uh, can you name one? Okay, um, he's not concerned at all because he believes he is the stuff. He's going to make it. 
He's going to be the first 5'4 guy in the NBA. And, and while that was silly and funny to me, man, I see a shadow of my own pride. I see an echo of my own pride in that student's self-perception. How often do I, how often do we, there's not a person in this room who doesn't struggle with pride. How often do we think of ourselves too often and too highly? So let's put aside our pride. What are some practical ways we can put this into action? I think we can, number one, try to be better listeners. Try to be better listeners. Try to receive correction better. That's a great measurement of how humble we are. How do we respond when those who are closest to us point out our sin? How do we respond? With thankfulness and repentance? Or in self-defense? We can be better listeners. We can be better receivers of correction. We can be people who seek reconciliation. That was Paul's application of humility. He will go on in the next chapter of Philippians to name two people in the church. Imagine that, getting like called out by name in one of Paul's letters. Right? Imagine you're there. This is being read for the first time in the church in Philippi. And you get called out by name. And he calls them, hey, agree with one another. Humble yourselves and agree with one another. Humility leads us in conflict to step back and say, okay, maybe I'm not right all the time. Maybe this other person, maybe there's something to their side of this argument. So humility, it's necessary if we're going to be reconciled to other people. So where there's interpersonal conflict in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships with other people here at our church, maybe at work, Humility should come and soften our hearts and cause us to look at it from the other person's perspective and to seek forgiveness where we have wrongs. Humility should, as I expressed earlier, it should lead us to express thankfulness for other people. And Redeemer, we have a unique opportunity here this coming month to consider and apply this principle of unity as we consider, as I don't think I'm saying anything new to anyone, uh, but we are considering a partnership with another church, two specifically, Missio Day and Unashamed Church coming together uh, and, and being one local church together and partnering with one another. And if you haven't made plans to join us for lunch at 1245, I pray that you would. All the food's provided. Uh, just come and, and meet and welcome and, and get to know some of the members and leaders from these other two churches. Um, but we will have... If it's God's will and we agree with one another as a congregation to partner and, and merge with these other two churches, we will have unique opportunities to put on the mind of Christ. There are going to be people that we meet who are different from us. As we all three come together, our, our worship service might look a little bit different. The songs that we sing as we try to sing songs that all three of our churches love and connect with. We might sing some songs that you like and some songs that you don't like. You might meet some members that you like and some members who maybe get a little bit on your nerves. You might have somebody join your Bible study who you think talks a little bit too much and uses up too much of the prayer time to, to spill out everything that's going on in their life. You might not like the personality or the preaching style or the, the way of expositing the word of, of, of one of the other pastors. And, and they might be thinking the same things about Jeremy and I. But we have an opportunity to come and be united and to say, hey, you know what? We are all disciples of Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and apart from these little things that could kind of be a, 
pebble in that rubs in the shoe. We can unite around our desire to make disciples and make Jesus known in our community. So let's partner together so we can do that better. We'll have lots of opportunities uh, to exercise that principle of unity as we come together. So that's my prayer, that we would be humble as we step into considering that partnership. But really quickly, as we we land, and uh, we started a few minutes late, and we need to get done on time, so I'm going to try to move through this a little bit quickly. Uh, We want to look quickly at the model of humility. So we looked at the mandate. Let's look now at where Paul grounds everything that he has called us to do. So at verse verse 5, where he exhorts us, he exhorts us, put on this mind, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ. So he restates the call to humility, And he's grounding it in the gospel. And many scholars agree, and you might be aware, that what follows, 6 through 11, um, is not original to Paul. This This is cool. Many scholars believe that he is quoting an early Christian hymn. He's quoting something unoriginal to him that was known to his audience, but this was likely a song that was sung during Christian worship in the first part of the first century, which as the pastor who leads worship here, I find thrilling in that it shows us this window into early Christian worship, but then also it shows us a window into what early Christians thought about Jesus. Contrary to what some... Uh, theologically liberal and progressive Christians would say today uh, that Jesus was just a man and that it wasn't until a century later that he was worshipped as a god. No, 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 no. Clearly, it is unavoidable from this passage, which Paul, writing in 60, is quoting from probably a decade to 15 years earlier, it's very clear that who the early church understood Jesus to be, and that is God in flesh. So let's consider... This in two parts. First, the humiliation and then the exaltation of Jesus. The humiliation and then the exaltation of Jesus. We could say so much about verses 6 through 8 and how they talk about um, Jesus taking on humanity, Jesus becoming a servant for us, Jesus uh, going and dying in our place on the cross. But let's consider this in just three parts. First, how, how do we learn to put on this humble mind of Christ First, Jesus displayed humility. We know his mind, his humble mind, because he is the one who renounced heaven. Renounced heaven. What do I mean by that? Verse 6. If you put your eyes back there, Paul, he says that though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, when Paul uses the word form, we have to get down into the words of this passage because there's, there's so much richness here. When he uses the word form, he wasn't saying that Christ is like a God. Some of my Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormon friends would try to like to manipulate this passage. Like it was like he was in the form of the God. He's not saying that he was God. No, the, the force of the language here, I'll, I'll quote a scholar who says that the force of this, the use of this word here is saying that Jesus really and truly in his own personal and essential nature was God. That's what he means when he says that Jesus, he was in the form of God. But what did he do? He didn't count equality with God, something he possessed. He didn't count that as something to be grasped, something to be used as an excuse not to come and do what the rest of the passage says that he did. 
So he humbled himself. So this one of whom Paul is speaking, he is the God who pre-existed everything come and entered his creation. He is the God who would, secondly, become a servant. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, again, paying attention to words here, because there's, there's so many ways that this passage has been misinterpreted. When Paul says that he emptied himself, he is not saying that in taking on a human nature, Jesus lost part of who he was. He's not saying that Jesus set aside his divine nature or part of his divine nature. Though there are people who teach that, something called kenosis theology or kenosis theory. And I think that it is very, very wrong-headed in a misunderstanding of the word here. This word empty, here's a good way of understanding it. Here's one definition. It is to deprive something of its proper place and use. So it's not for something to lose part of its essence or lose part of its nature. It is to deprive something of its proper place and use. So in Jesus emptying himself, it was not him taking his his deity or his power or his glory or his other defined attitudes and kind of setting them aside on a shelf and saying, all right, cool, I'll be back in a little while, God. It is him, God himself, becoming a servant. It is him humbling himself and stooping and taking on a role that was beneath him. So that's what it means that Jesus emptied himself. And many believe also that the connection here, there's a strong connection between this and Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, which it's likely we all know well, this amazing, clear, vivid passage that speaks some 700 years before the life of Jesus, of his sufferings. And it says that he emptied his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. So that's what it means that Jesus emptied himself. Let's be clear. But the most shocking part of this whole verse is not that he emptied himself, but it's the role that he emptied himself into. Servant, the word here, is the Greek word used to describe the state of slaves. Paul's saying he became a slave. He became a slave for us, there was no lower than it could go in Roman society than to become a slave. There was no lower. And this is what Christ did for us, which leads us to verse 8, where we are reminded that Jesus, his humility is displayed in how he bore the cross. When Paul wants to communicate the lengths and the depths of Jesus' humble heart, he takes us to the cross, where he says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this Jesus, who was God, who didn't count equality with God, something to grasp, but instead humbled himself and became a servant, he not only came to suffer with us, the indignities of humanity, the pain of, of, of living in this broken world, he not only came to suffer with us, but he came to suffer for us. As Paul will make clear elsewhere, whenever Paul mentions the cross, he is talking about substitution. He is talking about how he would say in the book of Colossians, uh, verse, verses 13 and 14 of Colossians chapter 2, where he says and reminds us, hey, you were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. 
God made alive together. God has made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So this is Paul's shorthand. This is his summary way of saying like, hey, remember what you believe about salvation? You were dead and separated from God. God in Christ died for you and bore in his flesh the guilt of your sin that you may be brought to God. That's what he's, he's calling to mind for us here as he uses this one word. So I want to ask you before we continue, is that your hope this morning? Is that your hope? The cross, what Jesus accomplished there for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you have not placed your faith in Christ and, and turned to him in confession and repentance, believe in him. Believe in this humble God. Be convinced of his love for you by how far he was willing to stoop in order to atone for your sins. Every other worldview, every other religion sets forth before us a God who says, serve me. The gospel says, God served us. God has humbled himself. Jesus Christ became a servant, went to the cross for you. Why would you not believe in that sort of God? Why would you not follow that kind of Lord? And this leads us, lastly, we don't even really have time to consider the riches of verses 9 through 11, where Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, And under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Scholars debate how this connects with the rest of of the passage. How do we we apply this idea of, of exaltation after being humbled? I think the solution here is very simple. Jesus is so humble that even now as he reigns from heaven... Even now, as we we look forward to the day when he will return and and every tongue will worship him, every knee shall bow to him and confess that he is Lord. Jesus, even as he is worshipped and exalted, was done so and placed there by the Father who raised him up. So no part of Jesus' heart has any sort of self-interest or pride. So even as he is exalted and being worshipped, it is at the hands of of the Father. And and even as he receives glory, it is by way of his people and his church worshiping him. So Jesus, we should should look forward in hope to this day when Jesus will be worshiped and vindicated by all. Church, we as the people of a humble God should be humble people. And we should actively put on this mind every day. How would that transform our homes, our church, our relationships with our spouses, our coworkers, our, our children, that we would be people who say, I like Jesus, I'm here not to be served, but to serve. Again, applying this in this moment for us as a church body to this partnership we're considering with Messio and with Unashamed, I pray that that is what we as members of Redeemer would be characterized by as we get to know these other brothers and sisters, that we would be characterized by humility, that we would be people who would approach this partnership and say, not what can I get from these people, but what, what can I give, what can I do, how can I serve, how can I encourage? Let's put on the mind of Christ uh, today and always. I pray that the Spirit 
would make it so. 